0: Smilla rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa afdulu salati wa atamu taslimi ala sayyidina Muhammadin as-sadiqil Amin, Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man istenna bi sunnatihi ila yawm al-deen. Allahumma alimna ma yanfa'una wa anfa'na bima Al wa zidna min fadlika Inman wa Adima in Nakala kulli shayin qadir wa ba Alhamdulillah, this is lesson 63. And we have been discussing the lead-up to the Battle of Badr for quite a while. And now we are looking at the actual conflict and the battle that ensued. So in the previous class, we talked about those final attempts to stop bloodshed on the part of Quraysh. We also talked about Utbah's challenge for the duel and the defeat of Utbah, his brother, and his son. And then we talked about the sleeping of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the dreams he saw assuring the Muslims of victory. Also seeing the dreams of the number of the enemy being more than they were. And we talked about the arrival of Jibreel and the arrival of Mikail along with 500 angelic soldiers on both sides. So there's a thousand soldiers from the angels that appeared. That's what we talked about last week. Moving along, in the cedar works, when you get to the section on the battle of Badr, you see that they put together about a dozen or so stories, 15 or so stories about the actual fights between this one and that one, the duel between this one and that one, and different confrontations. Because if you think about it, with 313 people fighting against less than 900 or so, it's impossible to give an account of every single person and who they fought and how they fought and what happened. So what we have are the most prominent stories of the battles that took place in that battle. So when we look at those skirmishes and fights, It's hard to get an exact chronological order. So what we do is present the order given in most of the books of Seerah. One narration tells us, and this is in Ibn Hisham, it tells us that after those duels were done, there was a tense stillness between the two groups. You can imagine that as these two groups have their duel, three on three, and their three get wiped out. They don't just rush into battle right after that. There's this tense stillness, because now they're processing that three of their men just got cut down. And so in this tense stillness, both sides are waiting until the sound is broken by an arrow fired by Quraysh. Someone from Quraysh fired an arrow and the arrow traveled across to the Muslim side and struck the freed slave of Umar falling, he fell down and he was was killed. Then comes another arrow from the Quraysh side that struck Haritha who was a young man from Khazraj who was over by the cistern drinking from the water the Muslims had gathered. So he is hit by an arrow. The battle lines are drawn on both sides and they're drawing near and near and now you get those first arrows coming across from Quraysh. Arrows are coming more frequent. And at this stage, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam steps out and he encourages the companions to fight, to engage in the battle, as Allah Ta'ala commanded him, وَحَرِّضِ muminina al So picture in, you ma- in your mind, if you will, two battle lines drawn up. The Muslims on one side, Quraysh on the other side, but they're still at some distance. But they're not so far away that the arrows fired by Quraysh don't land on their targets and actually hit people. So it's about to start, but not yet. And the Prophet Sallallahu goes out to encourage the believers to be firm and to go forward into this conflict. One narration says that he addresses the Muslims on this day as they were about to fight, saying Walla the Nefsu Muhammadin by the one in whose hands is Muhammad's soul. There is no one who fights them today and is killed in battle. Sabiran muhtasiba, patient and expecting a reward in the hereafter, Mukbiran Rira Mutbir, facing the enemy and not fleeing except that Allah will admit that person into Jannah. So these are the words of As-Sadiq Al-Masduq the one who is truthful and confirmed (coughs) promising them Jannah for any one of them who is steadfast in the face of battle. Facing against a numerically and materially stronger enemy as it appeared to them in the world of Asbab. So he also encouraged them with other words. One narration says that he encouraged the believers by saying, rise up to a garden as expansive as the heavens and the earth. And here we have the famous hadith of one of the Ansar named Umayyar ibn Hummam. Umayyar ibn Hummam radiallahu anhu, he hears these words from the Prophet sallallahu and he says, Ya Rasulullah, Gardens, as spacious as the heavens and the earth. And the Prophet wasallam said, "Nam." Now, umayr the hadith says, was asking this question as he was eating some dates. Now, you may wonder, why would someone who's in the battle line, armed, about to go into a conflict, be standing there just eating dates? Would you be eating dates if you were about to clash with the enemy? Maybe you could have your snack time later on. Why was he eating dates? The ulema say that he's eating dates because you want to have some extra strength in the battle. If, it's, if the fight hasn't started and you have a chance to have a protein shake, would you not take it? Maybe it gives you that little bit of an advantage of an extra boost of energy and strength. So here he is, Umair bin Hammam, he's eating these dates to get that extra boost. But he hears the Prophet Sallallahu say that you should rise up to gardens as expansive as the heavens and the earth. And he asked the Prophet Sallallahu it's as if he said really? Not because he doubted him but because he wanted to just make sure. Did I hear correctly? Are you really saying that after this comes gardens as wide as the heavens and the earth? And he says yes. And so Umayr bin Hammam, he looks over at these dates that he's eating, and I'm looking over at my hand, I don't know how he was holding them, if they were in a bag, I don't know. But assuming he had them in his hand, he looks over at them, and he says Bakhin, Bakhin. In Arabic, that is a saying, when you want to say that something is trifling, or paltry, or minuscule, a very low value. He said Bakhin, Bakhin. He says if I live long enough To eat all of these dates Then it's too long of a life And so he tosses the dates to the side And he charges head on into the enemy Now remember the lines are drawn And they're apart from each other But here Um, uh, Umar bin Hammam Rushes into the enemy line Face first, head first Right into the enemy charging towards them and he's swinging his sword. He is striking this one and striking that one and he's attacking and getting attacked. Of course he's getting attacked because he's going into their ranks. He's just one man. But as he goes swinging upon the enemy, he's taking blows as well until he's cut down in the thick of battle. And Ibn Hisham and others, they narrate from the Sahaba who were there that as he had charged into the enemy line and was swinging and getting cut down, he began to recite poetry. And this is very common. We're We're so removed from that reality, but in that oral culture, the poetry was so powerful and used for so many different occasions. As he's being cut down, he starts reciting poetry. And the poetry is translated as follows. Running to Allah with no provision, no protection Running to Allah with no protection But piety and work for the hereafter And bearing the striving for the sake of Allah And every provision is depleted Except for piety, goodness and wisdom That doesn't sound a lot like poetry At least in English But in Arabic it's quite eloquent But that's what he's saying and what umayr bin Hummam did is called by the fuqaha al-inghimasu fil-adu which means a person throwing themselves directly into the enemy. Basically a one-man operation going right into the enemy ranks is this suicide. It's not suicide because death does not come at his own hands. It comes at the hands of his enemy. But he is thrusting himself into the enemy ranks. And this is in order to frighten them. It's a kind of psychological warfare because if that's what the first of them does, showing no fear, what about the rest of them, the other 312? What are they going to bring? So it becomes a psychological tactic as well. So this is called al inrimas fil-adu and it's permissible in these circumstances. Now remember from last week we talked about a Sahabi named Auf ibn harith He was among the young Ansar who first went out for the confrontation in the Mubaraza against Utbah and his brother and son. Remember he along with two others of the Ansar, young men went out to, to do the Mubaraza, the One on one duels, yet the Prophet called them back because Utbah wanted to be in a duel with their relatives of Quraysh. So Amr bin Harith was eager to have this one on one duel with Utbah and his brother and son, but he was called back. Yet now we have Amr bin Harith who is disappointed, we could assume. At having not received the chance to engage in the duel, but in this moment he asked the Prophet sallallahu a question. He says, "Ya Rasulullah, what results in Allah being extremely pleased with His servant?" And the Prophet sallallahu answered him, "When the servant." Plunges, Yan plunges without armor or chainmail into the midst of the foe. This is the Inrimas we just talked about. That is when Allah is extremely pleased with the servant. It shows satisfaction and trust, it shows certainty, firmness and resolve, and a confirmation of their iman, their conviction in the hereafter. All of those values are wrapped up implicit within that act of inrimas. So Amr bin Harith Having lost the chance to do the duel He asked this question The Prophet sallallahu Answers that it's when a servant plunges himself Without armor and without chain mail Into the midst of the foe Now When he asked this question Amr is wearing armor He's armed And he has armor When he heard this He takes off his armor He takes it off and he goes into the enemy lines and he begins fighting them until he too is cut down and leaves this world as a shaheed as well so these are the early skirmishes that are happening before the full-fledged battle so it appears at this stage that just before the battle broke out between both sides in their entirety it appears that just before that final charge, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was standing at some distance from the idol worshippers of Quraysh. And at this distance, he s- picks up some small pebbles and sand within his blessed hand, some small gravel, and he says, shahatil wujoo, shahatil wujoo, may their faces be disfigured and cursed. O Allah, cast fear into their hearts and cause their feet to shake. This was the dua the Prophet made as he held these small bits of gravel in his blessed hand. And then he threw this gravel into their direction. So we're talking I don't know the exact distance but we're talking many, several yards. Now, how far can gravel travel? If it's small bits of gravel and you take it and you throw it like this. Five feet, seven feet, ten feet, maybe. But this gravel that he threw traveled far beyond and went directly into the eyes of every single one of Quraysh blinding their eyes, causing them to have difficulty in seeing and trying to rub their eyes to get the effects of the gravel out of their eyes. Every one of them had gravel particles in their eyes. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals an ayah about this incident, the incident of the throwing. In Surah Al-Anfal, he says, وَمَا رَمَيْتَ إِذْ ramait, Allah rama." Which is a very interesting phrase. Allah Ta'ala says to His beloved Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and you did not throw when you threw. But it was Allah who threw. Now, imagine if someone said to you, You did not wash the dish when you washed the dish. There's an affirmation. Followed by a negation. So, which one is it? Did you wash the dish or did you not wash the dish? Allah Ta'ala in the beginning of this verse says, Wa ma ramait, You did not throw. Idramait. When you threw. So, Allah is negating throwing and affirming that He threw. Ramah, but it was Allah who threw. This is a very curious verse and it has a lot of our theology is uh, built into these meanings we extract a lot of theological benefit from this verse and from it we learn the basic belief we have as muslims that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is khaliqul af'al huwa ibad allah is the creator of actions he creates the deeds And we have acquisition of those deeds. We have some involvement and free will and agency. But it is the act of God that these actions are created by God. That's what is affirmed in this verse. So from one perspective, one i'tibar, we say the abd, the servant, has done this action. By way of acquisition, it's ascribed to him. They're the mutasabib, they're the ones who... They, they work in the realm of cause and effect, but who was creating the cause and the effect and the conjunction between the two? Who was given that servant the ability and the capacity, uh, all of these things? Allah Subh'anaHu Wa ta'ala. Wallahu khalaqakum wa ma ta'amaloon. Allah creates you in what you do. So there's theology in this verse. And Allah Taala is mentioning the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam as the sabab he is the means by which the gravel went into their eyes. But the doer, the musabbib in this case, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Musabbibul asbab. And even in this case, it was done in a manner that breaks the norms that we observe in the world. Because normally, if you throw gravel like this, it's only going to travel a certain distance. But this gravel traveled at a miraculous distance. And if you throw gravel at a group of hundreds of people, it may land into the faces of four or five of them, even if it's, they're close enough. But this landed in every one of their faces. So this is a miracle. And the verse talks about a deeper theological understanding that we have. So we operate in the world, and we also recognize Allah as the creator of cause and effect. So he does this and it takes them a moment to get the gravel out and get their bearings. And at this stage, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam tells the Muslims to charge forward. They go forward now as one group into battle against the other group. And they charge forward with the battle cry of the Muslims on that day, which is, Ahadun Ahad. The same thing that Bilal was saying, when he was being tortured. Ahadun Ahad. So they were now marching into battle, crying ahadun ahad, and the battle is starting. And you have to, because it's, it, it's very hard to really put yourself in this place because we're, we're so removed from this reality, but as they're going forward, charging into battle, also you have to understand they're very observant Of their environment around them who's next to them who's in front of them and more importantly they're very observant of where the Prophet is put yourself in their shoes if you were there of course you are in battle and you are fighting the enemy but your concern even more than concern for your own life is that of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam So of course you would want to know Where is he? What's going on? Is he okay? So they are going into battle They're also observing Where is the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam And they were encouraged Because they see him And he's wearing his armor And he's carrying his sword And he's also reciting verses of the Quran That encourage them in battle And also suddenly pray against the enemy he is reciting the verse where Allah Ta'ala says wa means the group will be defeated وَيُوَلُّونَ means they will turn on their backs fleeing This is a verse of Quran and he's reciting it in the heat of battle So the Muslims are hearing this and they're seeing him and they're encouraged Now. It's at this stage that we get to this question. We know the Muslims are observing the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That means they're also reporting back to us where he was. But we get to this question and that is what was the level of involvement the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had in direct combat on the day of Badr. Was he in direct combat against the enemy? Or was he not in direct combat, but taking a leading role by directing the troops and organizing them and moving their positions and so on? The answer is both and more. When you take all of the narrations together, you understand he's doing those two things and more. Because we have the athar, the hadith rather from Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu. Imam Ali said, and who is Ali? What's the one virtue that he is associated with? Shujaa, bravery. So among the Sahaba, he is one of the bravest, if not the bravest. Yet here Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu anhu says, We, he's speaking about himself and the others, We sought protection in the person of the Prophet and he was the closest to the enemy and the greatest in courage. This is coming from one of the bravest of the brave and he is saying that we sought protection in the person of the Prophet He's leading from the front. They are behind him. He's sheltering them. That's the attitude. That's what he's expressing. So this shows, the uh, the narration of Ali shows that the Prophet was directly involved in combat. That said, there are other narrations which seem to show some discrepancy because other narrations say that he was in the tent. Remember the tent that they set up for him and he was in that tent and he was praying in that tent. Some narrations say that he was in this tent commanding the troops and observing them from a distance, to see all of them in their movements. And there is no real contradiction between the hadith of Ali and the narrations about him being in the tent. Because in fact, Imam Ali is also among those who narrate him being in the tent. So <laughs> what we understand from this is that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would be engaged in combat for a while and then he would direct the troops to make a move here and a move there and he would go back into the tent to observe and also to engage in salat and dua that's one of the means of victory so he's engaged in combat which is a means of victory he's directing the troops and their positions which is a means of victory and he's back in the tent in salat and dua which are means of victory. This indicates that the fighting was in waves. We watch so many movies where we see people from the pre-modern period engaged in combat with swords and bow and arrow and shields and we just think it's two masses just crashing into each other and that's all it is until everyone's dead or defeated or whatever. It's not quite like that because Troops move strategically, they go behind uh, land masses, they take breaks, they regroup, they retreat, they, they flank the enemy, they do multiple movements, and that means there's going to be waves of attack, and there's also going to be lulls and pauses. So we understand from these narrations that the Battle of Badr was not a quick affair that took place in 20 or 30 minutes and was over. We, we get from the narrations that there were periods of activity and periods where things slowed down and then they picked back up again. And this is how we understand the narration showing the Prophet wasallam fighting directly and then the narration showing him in the tent praying or in the tent directing the troop movements. So it's at this stage, the back and the forth, And it's at the stage when the Prophet ﷺ is in the tent, engaged in du'a, that we get the next experience recorded in the seerah, the experience where Allah Ta'ala lifted the veils from several companions by which they were able to see the presence of those angels. رفع الحجاب and by hijab here we mean the veil between the alam al wa shahada. The veil cast between the visible world that we're in and the unseen world that we're in. We, we use this word ghayb and we understand ghayb refers to other realms like the barzakh after death or the realm of yawmul qiyamah or the realm of Jannah or Jahannam. These are all Awalim, Ghaybiyyah. These are unseen realms. But even in this realm that we're in, the Alim al-Dunya, the lower world realm, there are realms of unseen that are here that we just don't see. So the Jinn, for instance, and the realm of the angels. We don't see the angels, typically. We don't see the jinn typically, but those veils could be removed if Allah wills to remove them. And the ulama say that when or if Allah removes the veils and people uh, have the veil lifted and they see the angels, they don't hear them speak. Or if the veil is lifted and they hear the angels speak, they don't see them. And that is only the prophets for whom the veil is lifted whereby they see and hear the angels simultaneously. So at this stage, Allah Ta'ala lifted the veils from some of the people and they were seeing some of the angels on horseback. And we have some narrations about this. In Sahih Muslim, we have the narration from Ibn Abbas radiallahu Anhuma. He says that one of the companions was pursuing a mushrik you, you get this theme of a mushrik, an idol worshipper engaging in hostilities but then trying to beat a hasty retreat But then the Muslim is chasing after him saying, no, hold on, wait a minute, we're not done There's chasing after him So Ibn Abbas says that one Muslim is chasing after a mushrik And as he was chasing after him and getting near to him, he heard the sound of a loud whip in front of him now Imagine a whip cracking You can identify where it's coming from. It's either behind you, to your side, or in front of you. He hears it in front of him, a very loud cracking of a whip. And he then heard a rider calling out, Go forth, Hayzun. Presumably the name of the horse in the unseen realm, the angelic realm. And he saw then that as this mushrik was about to attack him, his nose just was lopped off. It just fell off So here he's not seeing the angels But he's hearing the angels One of them at least And then he hears the crack of the whip He hears the angel call out to the horse And then he sees the effect of that angel In the unseen He sees the nose of that mushrik Fall off Now go back to the dua of the Prophet What did he say in the beginning As the battle was about to start Shahatil wujoo Shahatil wujoo Right? And this is what's happening. The faces are getting disfigured. Hakim ibn Hizam, we talked about him last week. Remember, he's the relative. Hakim ibn Hizam, this is before he becomes a Muslim. He's recounting later in his life what happened on Badr when he was there on the enemy side, the Qurayshi side. He says, We heard a sound like something falling from the sky and falling to the ground, like a pebble falling into a large metal bowl you ever seen these these large bowls they, they bang them with the you know the gongs so imagine a, a pebble or a stone falling into a large metal bowl imagine the kind of sound that would make he says we heard that sound a sound like that and the messenger of Allah وسلم, he said took that pebble that had dropped and then he threw it. Such an interesting narration, because the previous narrations say gravel in the generic sense, like you get the impression that it's a handful of gravel. But according to this narration of Hakim bin Hizam, it's actually a pebble falling from the sky, making a loud noise like a pebble falling into a large metal bowl, which is then picked up by the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and cast at the enemy. Yet the other narrations are consistently telling us that everyone's getting stuff in their eyes. It's, it's astounding. He says, he threw that pebble, and we were defeated. It's as if he's saying, once that happened, it was done. It was a done deal. He said, after that, a man's head would fall, and no one would know who struck him. And an arm would fall, and no one would know who struck it. This is the hadith of Hakim bin Hizam. Ibn Abbas tells us that never did the angels actually fight with the believers in a battle except on the day of Badr. This is interesting because we acknowledge the presence of the angels in other battles that happened later, but they were there for support and prayers and their presence. But they weren't actually engaged in hostilities fighting except for this battle this is the only battle where that took place so as i said earlier when you look at the narratives of badr when the fighting takes place you're really piecing together 12 to 15 different narratives there could be more if you add in the various wordings but there's about a dozen or so narratives and different wordings that talk about individual incidents that happened with this companion and that companion until we get to the end of the battle. So I'll mention a few of these. We have the narration, the famous narration of Ukasha ibn Mihsan radiAllahu anhu. Ukasha ibn Mihsan was in the battle and as he was fighting, he struck someone with his sword, hitting that man's armor. And by doing so, it calls his sword to break into two. How are you going to fight a battle with a broken sword? You're going to swing a one foot bottom piece of a sword around, it won't work. So again, put yourself there. Put yourself there, you're fighting, your sword breaks. What are you going to do? What does Rukasha do? Rukasha does what any intelligent Muslim would do on that day. He goes to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he tells him, my sword broke, what do I do? He tells this to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the Prophet Wasallam picks up the sword and then he puts it down and then he takes a small, uh, what do they call this? It's like a club, you know? Think of like a small stick, not a stick, but a, like a small club, piece of wood lying around. He picks up this piece of wood And then he hands it to Ukasha, and he tells him to go fight with this. Is Rukasha going to question the Prophet? He's not going to question him. Even if it remained, because we know the ending of the story, even if it remained as this wooden club, he would have obeyed and he would have gone swinging this wooden club around. But that's not what happened. He takes the wooden club. The Prophet Sallallahu says, go fight with this. And he picks it up and it's transformed into a sword. Qalbul yani the, 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 the essence of that wooden club was completely transformed into a different essence altogether. So Allah Ta'ala, the creator of the wood, transformed the wood into metal. And it was a sword. He was, said, he was told to go and fight with this. He goes and fights with this and he kept that sword with him throughout his life of course he would who would ever give up that sword you wouldn't sell that for anything in the world and he kept this with him and he used it in every single battle until he was slain by Musaidima Al-Kathab the false prophet so he fought against him during the Khilafah of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and he was slain in that battle. And there are some narrations that say that he was buried with this sword. And Allah Ta'ala knows best. In this fighting, we also come to the story of the person who for all this time was pretending to be someone he was not. The person pretending to be Suraqa ibn Madik. Who was pretending to be Suraqah ibn Madik? Shaitan. Shaitan, Iblis, alayhi l'anatullah, was pretending to be Suraqa bin Malik, was in that form. And the Sira works mentioned that when Iblis saw Quraysh dropping right, left, and center, both at the hands of the Muslims and by angelic hands, he realized that defeat was inevitable. And when he saw the angels approaching in their troops, that is when he made the decision to run away he fled when he saw the angels coming in ranks and we know that he came in the form of Suraqah ibn Madik and the narrations say that as quote unquote Suraqah ibn Madik in his form this person pretending to be him was trying to flee one of the Quraysh uh, Harith ibn Hisham grabbed onto him grabbing his garments and clinging onto him thinking that he's suraqa and he says to him where are you going what are you doing didn't you say that we're under your protection because that was the story right they were worried about kinana attacking them from the rear and suraqa ibn malik who's from banu kinana goes to them or ibris in his form goes to him them and says we have your back so he grabs onto him hisham, uh, uh, hisham, bin hisham says Aren't you going to protect us? Didn't you say we have your uh, we have your protection and so on? And then Iblis basically spills the beans, as we would say. Now, Allah Taala describes this incident in the Quran in Suratul Anfal. Allah Taala mentions the words of Iblis. He says, "وَإِذْ زَيَّنَ لَهُمُ الشَّيْطَانُ أَعْمَالَهُمْ" وَقَالَ لَا, وَقَالَ لَا غَالِبٌ لَكُمُ الْيَوْمَ مِنَ الْنَّاسِ وَإِنِّي جَارٌ لَكُمْ. فَلَمَّا تَرَاءَتِ الْفِئَتَانِ عَلَىٰ عقبيه وَقَالَ إِنِّي بَرِيءٌ مِنْكُمْ إِنِّي أَرَىٰ مَا إِنِّي أَخَافُ اللَّهَ وَاللَّهُ شَدِيدُ الْعِقَابِ Shaytan made their actions seem good to them, tazyeen, beautified their actions. And he said, you cannot be defeated by any people today. This is, of course, referring to him in the form of suraqah ibn Malik encouraging them to go forth. You cannot be defeated by any people today And I am at your side But when the two armies came in sight of one another He turned on his heels And he said I am free of you I am innocent of you I see what you do not see I fear Allah And Allah is severe in punishment So there's an indication here that As Quraysh are being dropped left and right by the angels, they don't see the angels, but Shaytan sees the angels and tells them, I see what you can't see. So here Allah Ta'ala records the response of Iblis to Harith ibn Hisham when he clings to him, asking him, didn't you say that you're going to protect us and so on. So he says this to Harith ibn Hisham and then he smacks him on the chest, getting him to fall off of him. And then he goes off running. The narration says that he kept running and running and running until he ran straight into the Red Sea. Because it's Shaitan, after all. He's running all the way into the Red Sea and he cast himself into the Red Sea. This is recorded by Ibn Hisham. So he runs away. Now, there's some really interesting narrations about Shaitan's experience here at the day of Badr. We have the narration from Talha this is mentioned in the Muwatta of Imam Madik, Rahimahullah, Talha ibn Ubaidillah, Anhu, he says that the Prophet, Sallallahu Wasallam, said about Shaytan, Shaytan was never seen on a day in which he was smaller, more rejected, and more humiliated, or more furious than the day of Arafah, except that which he saw on the day of Badr. Of course, Shaitan gets angry on many different occasions. Whenever you're doing something good, he's angry. Right, he doesn't want people to do good. But there's a spectrum of anger here. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is saying that after the day of Arafat, and this is where Allah Ta'ala reveals, <laughs> This day I've perfected your deen and completed my favor upon you and chosen Islam as your way. That was the day in which Shaytan was the angriest because the Sharia was completed in its revelation. The law is intact. The message has been conveyed. The only day in which he was, uh, the only after Arafat, the day in which he was the most angry, but also dejected and rejected and humiliated was this day, the day of Badr. Now, at some point, Quraysh realized that this person in the guise of Suraqa ibn Madik is not actually Suraqa ibn Madik at all. They realized this at some point as he's fleeing in this very strange way. And the narration say that when they realized it was not Suraqa ibn Madik at all, their hearts sunk and they felt that defeat was absolutely s- certain their morale plummeted because now they realize we have been defeated not only defeated but in a very bad way we were we are crushed concerning iblis the verse in the quran mentions that iblis says inni akhafullah indeed i fear allah What's going on there? Is he speaking the truth or is he telling a lie? Well, Qatada he narrates that Iblis in this incident he spoke truth and he told a lie. He says he spoke the truth when he said to them inni ara ma I see what you cannot see. Because certainly he saw the angels and the Quraysh they couldn't see the angels. But Qatada says he lied when he says "Inni akhafullah," indeed I fear Allah. That was the view of Imam Qatada, one of the early Mufassirun Some of the other scholars say that when Iblis says "Inni akhafullah," indeed I fear Allah, it, he said that because when he saw the angels appear in ranks and in, uh, in armor and swords and all of this, he was actually afraid that this was the moment. The final moment for him. Because remember, in the Quran, Allah tells us the story repeatedly of Shaitan refusing to bow to Adam alayhi salam. And when he is ejected, what does he say? He says, ila Qala He says, Give me respite. Give me respite. until an appointed time. And according to this view, when he saw the angels appearing in ranks on the day of Badr, he was afraid that that day was the day after which there would be no reprieve. And so he was afraid. Now, moving along, we, we mentioned how when the bulk of Quraysh saw that Suraqah ibn Malik was not actually Suraqah ibn Malik at all. They saw him flee in this very strange way. Their hearts sank and they, their morale plummeted. But not all of them were so ready to concede defeat. Some of them were not ready to concede. Some of them still wanted to be in the fight no matter what. One of them who didn't want to withdraw was an individual of Quraysh Named Amr ibn Hisham What's his kunya? Abu Jahl Amr ibn Hisham is Abu Jahl Abu Jahl saw this person in the guise of Suraqa ibn Malik flee who was Iblis He saw the Muslims breaking the ranks of Quraysh and defeating them He saw his own people dispersing and running away But he wasn't ready to withdraw He wanted to stay and fight. And so he went on with a group of hardened fighters who were surrounding him to protect him, and they wanted to continue in the fight. And the story tells us that as he's moving forward with these other hardened troops that are surrounding him and protecting him, as the last remnants of the fighters thin out, either by running away or being cut down, that group surrounding him got smaller and smaller and at that point the Muslims are observing him at a distance and they realize this is a golden opportunity this is now our chance to go and have combat with Abu Jahl so the Fir'aun of the Ummah as he's described the Pharaoh of the Ummah we know from the Hadith that he gets confronted by two young men of the Muslims, Two, they were teenagers, Mu'adh ibn Amr al jumuh and Mu'awwid ibn Afra. And the hadith tell us that they were engaged in combat near Abdur, uh, Abdurrahman ibn Awf. So you can picture the combat, they're moving in groups. So they're near Abdurrahman ibn Awf. They're from the Ansar, they're not from the Muhajirun. So, they want to verify the identity of Abu Jahl. Where is he? Point him out to me. We want to see where he's at. So the narration says that as they're fighting near Abdurrahman ibn Auf, they go up to him and they nudge him and say, where's Abu Jahl? And the two, Mu'ad ibn Amr and Mu'awwad ibn Afra were in this friendly competition to see who could get Abu Jahl the first. So they ask Abdur Rahman ibn Auf, where is Abu Jahl? And one of them actually says, Have you seen him? Have you seen him before? Do you know what he looks like? Because I heard that he disrespected the Prophet. And I've given an oath by Allah that if I see him, my shadow will overlap with his shadow until one of the two of us is slain. In this very figurative beautiful language He's saying I will not give up until my shadow Overlaps his shadow So you know imagine a person Standing in the sun Their shadow is cast And you walk up to them So that your shadow is over his shadow It's basically an eloquent way of saying I will not rest I have taken an oath by Allah I will not rest I will not give up Until I am directly in front of him To confront him And battle him one on one That's what he says. So Abdurrahman ibn Awf says, If I see him, I'll let you know. And the the battle continues, and they're going back and forth here and there in the battle until eventually they poke him again and they say, Where's Abu Jahl? Because they're on the lookout. Now, Abu Jahl at this time was standing in a grove of trees. And you have to understand the nature of combat by being in the grove of trees, it affords you some form of protection, a a minor form of protection. So he's in this grove of trees, and he's surrounded by these other men, along with his son Ikrimah ibn Abi Jahl, and these are strong young people, they're defending him. So the story of how Abu Jahl was slain is told in part by Abdurrahman ibn Awf, who's asked by these two young men, And he says that when we were fighting, I saw Abu Jahl in the distance. So I shouted out to the two young men. I said, there is your, which in English translates as, that is your companion. It's not his companion, but he means that's your man. That's the guy you're looking for. And so they go to get Abu Jahl. And this is the famous story. It mentions that Mu'adh ibn Amr Raced forward Going towards those trees And he's rushing Because he's afraid That he might not get Abu Jahl Maybe he runs off and retreats He is rushing Trying to cover that distance To close the distance And get close to him And take him out But as he's getting closer And is about to close the distance Someone gets in his way He's not able to make that that full thrust. So in that final moment, he runs in the air, he jumps with full force and comes down, basically smashing into the left leg of Abu Jahl with his sword. Basically taking the leg off. But he didn't get the upper portion of the body because the other person stood in his way. So we weren't there, we didn't see this, so we can only use our imaginations to think how that might have looked. Person's rushing, someone stands in his way, but he does this jump to basically get over that person to then land on Abu Jahl, but not landing on the top, but landing at the bottom, taking off his leg. This is Mu'adh ibn Amr. The son of Abu Jahl, Uqrim, is trying to defend his father. And his sword swings and hits Mu'adh's right arm. So picture it, we are going to assume that Mu'adh is using his right arm with the sword. It's probably using both hands, but mostly his right because these are smaller swords. Ikrimah slices his arm almost clean off, but not always, not all, not completely off. The hadith says that the entire arm, right arm, is dangling off of Mu'adh, and it's just hanging on, as we would say, by a thread you know a piece of flesh or skin is hanging there what does muadh bin amr do the hadith says that he stands up he puts the dangling arm on the ground he puts his foot over it and yanks it off completely so that it would not impede his ability to fight and move and he lived through this amazingly enough he lived through this and he lived out the rest of his life with one arm, but this is how he lost that arm. And he died during the Khilafah of Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan. So, you know, he's a young man, so he could survive that kind of wound. So that's the first one who was going after Abu Jahl. What about his friend, Muawwad ibn Afrah? Muawwad ibn Afrah, you remember that he was one of those who volunteered among the young Ansaris to fight in the Mubaraza against Utbah and his brother and son. So he went forth and struck Abu Jahl as well. But in the Seerah accounts we don't get a sense of where exactly the, his blow landed. Was it in his upper body or the lower body as well? We don't know. But we also we know that he struck Abu Jahl as well. He would later become a Shaheed in this battle. Now. At this time, he's still alive, and Abu Jahl dies. He is slain in battle. Mu'ad ibn Amr and Mu'awud ibn Afra now come rushing to the Prophet wasallam, saying, "Qataltu Abu Jahl. I have slain Abu Jahl. Both of them are making the claim, who's right, who really did it. The Prophet wasallam hears them both say this, and they began to argue with each other as, as friends would argue. No, I did that. No, it was me. And the Prophet ﷺ said to both of them, Show me your swords. They both showed him their swords. And he looked at the swords and said, The both of you have killed him. Which means that the blow of Mu'ad ibn Amr wasn't the death blow. Nor was the blow of Muawad bin Afra the death blow. But the two blows combined are what resulted in Abu Jahl being slain in the Battle of Badr. And so they're both credited with being responsible for slaying Abu Jahl in the Battle of Badr. They both received that honor. So, most of Quraysh had by this point escaped. They're retreating. And there's a lot to say about this because we're not exactly finished with our talk about Badr. Because there's the aftermath of Badr both in the battlefield and the aftermath when Quraysh make their way back to Mecca and when people in Mecca find out about this humiliating defeat. The accounts mention that among Quraysh there were about 50 to 70 people mortally wounded or killed in battle or overtaken and cut down as they fled and about the same number of them were taken as captives and that's a whole other story we're going to explore the captives of Badr so this means that although we're at the end of the story of the Battle of Badr there are uh, threads within this story that have to be told we have post-battle discussions about Those individuals of Quraysh who were at Badr but whom the Prophet uh, forbade from being killed. So there were people on the Quraysh side at the Battle of Badr and the Prophet forbade the Muslims from killing them. We have to talk about them. Why? What happened there? Then we have to talk about the Muslims in Mecca who were forced to participate. How did that happen? Why weren't they making hijrah? How did they get forced into this? And then we wanna talk about the identities of the main mushrikun of Quraysh who were slain in battle and then the shuhada of Badr who were slain there. And then we talk about the casting of the mushriks into the well of Badr. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam addressing these mushrikoon uh, in, in their graves. And of course, the discussion about the captives of Badr, the decisions that were made concerning them and the proper understanding of that incident, inshallah ta'ala. And I wanted to end, I actually intended to read some lines of poetry to conclude this. Uh, I won't be able to read all of them, but I'll read the last few lines. So Imam al-Busayri rahimuhullah he has the famous poem in praise of the Prophet sallallahu Khayr al-Bariya, otherwise known as qasidatul burda and in that beautiful poem he has a whole chapter on the jihad of the Prophet sallallahu and it's one of the most eloquent sections in the poem uh, and there's about 15 lines here I don't think I'm going to read them all I'll just read the last line. In, in this line, the last line of this chapter was actually uh, inscr- written on the, the battle flag of Amir Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi, who was a famous scholar who led the Algerian Muslims uh, in, against the French uh, colonialists. So in his battles against the French, he would go into battle and their raya, their battle flag, consisted of this line of poetry written on a black flag. And the line is as follows. Imam al-Busayri says, وَمَن تكون بِرَسُولِ اللَّهِ نُصْرَتُهُ إِنْ تَلْقَاهُ الْأُسْطُ فِي أَجَامِهَا تجيمي He says, for the one whose help comes from the Messenger of Allah, even lions finding him in their dens will be thwarted or unable to do anything to him. So, the idea is if the person is receiving their help by virtue of their association and connection with Rasulullah because they're behind him in the battle, even if they were in the lion's den, literally or even if they were in the, the jaws of the lion, nothing is going to happen to them. Now, when you say nothing's going to happen to them, maybe a person will ask, well, didn't some of them get killed? Didn't some of them get wounded? Yes, that happens. But regardless of the wounds, regardless of the sacrifice, none of that affects them negatively in any way. In fact, it only increases them right so maybe next time i will read the whole the whole section all 15 lines it's very beautiful wallahu rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina muhammad wa ala adihi wa sahbihi wa sallam